Hello, my name is Yuli Bayraktari, and I'm the president and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. On May 9th, we co-hosted the Ash Carter Exchange on Innovation and Technology. We are excited to share with you this collection, the full audio of keynote addresses and panels from the entire day of the event. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everyone. I'm Abby Kakura with SCSP. What a moving tribute to Dr. Carter and an inspiring message that's bringing this group together today. I am honored to introduce our next speaker, Dr. the Honorable Dr. Elizabeth Sherwood Randall. Dr. Sherwood Randall is the White House Homeland Security Advisor. She has a long and distinguished career in the public service, having previously served in roles including as the Deputy Secretary of Energy, White House Coordinator for Defense Strategy and Arms Control, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Europe and NATO at the National Security Council. Dr. Sherwood Randall, we're thrilled to have you here today. The floor is yours. Wow, hearing Ash's voice, like the voice of God. I'm Liz. Many of you know me. I know you. I'm so thrilled to be with you here to honor our colleague and friend, Ash Carter. As hard as it is to be here without him, it means so much to be together, to lift up his legacy. Thank you, Abby and Ilbert, for the important work that you and the whole team at the Special Competitive Studies Project is doing. And profound thanks to Eric Schmidt, who I understand isn't yet here this morning for his financial support for this critical endeavor. I especially want to express both admiration and gratitude to the strong and resilient and devoted Stephanie Carter. Thank you for your determination in the face of tragedy to advance Ash's legacy by bringing us together here today. You all know this, Ash as a leader was fierce, focused, and fearless. In the hallways of the Pentagon, he was known for his brilliant ability to anticipate the future and give our warfighters what they needed to succeed. In classrooms at Harvard, he was known for mentor mentoring future generations of Ash Carters, holding them to the most rigorous standards and inspiring them to public service. And across startups in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, Ash was known for building bridges between the public and private sectors, which are essential to keeping our country's technology edge in the face of tough competition. But more than anything, no matter where he was or what job he was doing, Ash was known for his deep love for science and technology innovation. That passion was imbued with a profound sense of responsibility. Ash's first work as a budding national security analyst, he mentioned it in the video coming for just a year to Washington, involved evaluating whether nascent ballistic missile defenses would actually work against the nuclear threats of the Cold War. He earned his spurs working with scientists and policymakers who were present at the creation of our nuclear deterrent. Ash mentioned Sid Drell as one of them. And as a physicist, Ash was uniquely qualified to understand the immense dangers those nuclear weapons posed to humanity. 
just as he sought to use technology to help protect our nation, to ensure that we fielded a deterrent that was safe, secure, and effective, he also sought to diminish the risks of technology innovation. It was a sacred obligation that he met throughout his life. When he and I first worked together in the early 1990s, he was developing pioneering initiatives to reduce the threat of nuclear proliferation that emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union. And up until his last day, Ash was tackling the immense challenges we face with a new generation of powerful technologies, some already with us and some still emerging. As many of you know, when he returned to Harvard in 2017, he launched the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Around that time, he gave an interview. It's important to America's future, he said, that everybody feel like the pace of change isn't just dizzying, but it can work for them and not against them. Work for, not against. That's what today is all about. How can we do more to harness technology's benefits while mitigating its risks? How can we promote advancements that uplift our people and uphold our democratic values while making sure neither are inadvertently undermined? How can we seize this historic moment safely and securely, just like Ash did as a young scientist so many years ago? As you may know, I actually have two roles. They're intertwined. One is White House Homeland Security Advisor, and the other is Deputy National Security Advisor. Here today, I'll focus on this challenge in the homeland arena, ensuring that we innovate for public purpose while deliberately addressing the risks that may be associated with that innovation in the homeland. This has been a top Homeland Security priority for our administration since day one, on four key challenges in particular, biodefense, counterterrorism, national resilience, and migration. I'll start with biodefense. Over the last few years, we've seen the devastating effects that pandemics and pathogens can have on our society and our economy. Business, healthcare, supply chains, schools, travel, trade, our lives and livelihoods, basically everything was impacted. So our administration is doing more to prepare our country, not only for pandemics, but for all biological threats, whether accidental or deliberate. That's why last year, we launched a new national biodefense strategy. The strategy lays out several key goals. First, we must be able to quickly detect pathogens, including those that spread asymptomatically, so we can contain an outbreak right after it emerges. Second, after we detect a dangerous outbreak, we aim to launch a diagnostic test within 12 hours, then scale to tens of thousands of diagnostic tests within a week. And third, we need the ability to develop a vaccine for a new pathogen within 100 days and produce enough to cover the entire U.S. population within 130 days. These are very ambitious goals that will require bold, cutting-edge technology. So we're investing in research on mRNA vaccines, which are more rapidly adaptable and scalable than traditional vaccines. We saw this with COVID, where mRNA technology helped develop a vaccine in less than a year as opposed to the typical timeline of five to 10 years. On diagnostics, we're honing and harnessing metagenomic sequencing, a revolutionary technology that examines all the genomic material in a sample and identifies pathogens, even the ones we don't know to look for. All of this is just a start. 
President Biden often says we're at the start of a decisive decade where the decisions we make now will determine the course of our world for decades to come. And that's why he's requested $20 billion over the next five years for biodefense and pandemic preparedness. Biotechnology and biomanufacturing can solve some of the world's greatest challenges, including climate change, where we could help remove CO2 from the atmosphere and achieve net negative emissions on a massive scale. On food security, where we could develop crops that are more nutrient dense and more resilient against pests in extreme weather. Or global health, where we could increase the speed and efficiency of therapeutic and vaccine development. The rewards of biotechnology are immense, but so are the risks. How do we ensure that the biotech we use to fight these challenges is not misused to create new threats, including novel biological weapons? How do we ensure that the biotools we develop and deploy do not give an adversary an advantage on the battlefield? How do we ensure that the techniques used to support advances in biotechnology are not used to suppress human rights or particular populations? And how do we, as Ash directed, ensure that biotechnology works for, not against, humanity? Just as with Ash's pioneering work during the Cold War and its aftermath, we're starting out by establishing the norms and the guardrails surrounding these new next generation technologies. Our administration established a new biosafety and biosecurity innovation initiative, which involves every federal agency that funds, sponsors, conducts, or supports life science and biosecurity research. Together, we're examining how we can reduce bio-risks from studying biocontainment strategies to establishing new biosafety practices to mitigating cyber vulnerabilities in biomanufacturing systems. But we still have much more to do. Together with you, we need to work to reap the benefits of these technologies while we grapple with their pernicious potential. We're doing the same thing in the realm of counterterrorism. Advances in the digital world have helped advance our CT efforts around the world. We can more effectively track and counter terrorist financing. We can readily share extremist prevention and disengagement program with our partner, programming with our partners. And we can better leverage biometric data like fingerprints and facial IDs at airports and at borders, making it harder for extremists but easier for Americans to travel internationally. But as we know, the digital world has also brought many challenges. For example, in our time, radicalization to violence often happens online. Violent extremists use social media, file upload sites, and end-to-end -end encrypted chat applications to spread their dark ideologies and recruit followers and admirers. And they can do it from anywhere, from a cave in northern Somalia to a basement apartment in Syria to a hideout in Yemen. Here's another example. Every day, our systems screen biographic and biometric data from over 850,000 travelers across air, land, and sea, searching against intelligence and law enforcement databases for terrorists and other threat actors. But the data isn't perfect. Algorithmic matching is not perfect. Misidentification and fraud are real possibilities. We have to take on risks like this to make sure technology is keeping us safer without undermining our freedoms. And we are finding solutions. Almost exactly one year ago, an 18-year-old white supremacist entered a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, 
and began shooting, murdering 10 innocent people and injuring three more. He tried to live stream his racist attack to validate it and inspire others to follow him. But that didn't happen because it was quickly removed. This was the result of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, an organization convening governments and more than a dozen tech companies and their subsidiaries like Meta and Twitter, Microsoft, YouTube, and others, committed to preventing violent extremists from exploiting their platforms. Quickly removing that content helps prevent copycat attacks and reduces the risks of radicalization. Now, just as we did in Buffalo, we're working together to leverage technological solutions such as automated content removal tools to reduce the risks of an online world in which terrorist content can instantly go viral, inciting others to violence at home and around the world. But while steps like these help us better respond to terrorist threats, we have to do more to get at the root of the challenge if we hope to eliminate it. In that spirit, President Biden has called on Congress to enact new regulations that would hold technology companies accountable for the terrorist content that they spread online. And I want to pause here for a moment. It's not just what we are doing, it's how we are doing it. Ash once said that people around the world looked to the leaders of the United States for a clear vision of how the most powerful country on earth intends to promote freedom. It's important that we not only promote freedom and protect our people, but we do so in a way that minimizes risks. That's why the United States joined New Zealand, Twitter, and Microsoft to launch the Christchurch Call Initiative on algorithmic outcomes. It's funding a nonprofit called Open Mind that's building a new software that grabs and anonymizes data from social media and then stores it in a secure database. This new database will not only help researchers study how algorithms are steering users into darker and darker places, it will help ensure that we protect our people and their privacy. As we work to prevent threats in cyberspace, we're doing the same in our airspace and other areas critical to the resilience of our homeland. Since President Biden came into office, the number of drones registered with the Federal Aviation Administration has doubled. Today, there are nearly 900,000 unique drone registrations, a number that will only continue to grow every year as it has for the past decade. This emerging technology carries enormous opportunities, from inspecting power lines after an extreme weather event to surveying hard-to-reach areas to delivering critical medicines to rural communities. But it also carries enormous risks to our public safety and our homeland security. Over the last year alone, drones have been used to surveil our sensitive sites. They've dropped contraband into prisons and disrupted commercial air traffic. Some actors have tried to use these systems to attack our critical infrastructure. So our administration has invested in new technology that can detect and track and counter unmanned aircraft systems. So far, this technology has been safely deployed more than 500 times to protect our homeland and critical facilities, including in support of large events like the Super Bowl, the World Series, and the United Nations General Assembly. It's a huge feat, but as Ash often reminded leaders, Implementation takes work and constant attention. As we've worked to implement this technology, we've seen that we can't go at it alone. We can't cover every event at every facility nationwide. We need our state and local partners to be able to share the load. 
So we're asking Congress to pass legislation to provide our state and local law enforcement partners with expanded authorities so they can operate equipment to deal with this growing threat. We have also created new deployable technology packages that local governments can use to screen workers and participants at large events efficiently and effectively. They include software that leverages artificial intelligence or machine learning devices to auto-detect possible threats with algorithms that analyze x-ray images, saving time and potentially saving lives. That's our main goal when we think about our nation's resilience, how we can protect the lives of all Americans by hardening our homeland against threats, both by preparing communities for what may come their way and by using technology as a force multiplier. So we're deploying new sensor technology operated by the US Geological Survey to give communities early warning of earthquakes. We're developing new satellite-based fire detection algorithms that originated within the Pentagon so that we can help get people out and get firefighters in while a remote wildfire is still small. And we're investing in emerging technologies that can strengthen our energy grid's resilience and reliability in the event of a natural disaster or a deliberate attack. This is absolutely critical as we move toward greater electrification of our grid. As we integrate these new technologies into our Homeland Security Toolkit, we're also taking steps to ensure that we're not introducing new vulnerabilities into our systems. Again, like Ash, we're working to ensure we effectively anticipate and manage the double-edged sword of innovation. In practice, this means ensuring that our tools are engineered from beginning to end with resilience and security in mind, particularly cybersecurity. And it means ensuring the protection of privacy and civil liberties, including all personally identifiable information that we collect, use, maintain, or share. These imperatives, ensuring that emerging technologies are used to support democratic values and establishing guardrails to govern their use, Harken back to the groundbreaking, groundbreaking arms control work that Ash undertook during the Cold War. And they are a top priority for our administration. At the recent Summit for Democracy that the President convened, we announced new guiding principles on government use of surveillance technologies to establish rules of the road for how governments can lawfully employ these tools. We're also advancing responsible artificial intelligence innovation including by creating a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, launching an AI risk management framework, and as Vice President Harris announced just last week, investing $140 million through the National Science Foundation to advance responsible artificial intelligence R&D. We're proposing reforms to hold tech platforms accountable, including providing robust federal protections for Americans' privacy, particularly when it comes to children, and increasing transparency about platforms' algorithms. Finally, I want to discuss how we're leveraging technology to tackle the challenges that come with unprecedented hemispheric migration, another exigent homeland mission. Last year, we developed a new digital platform that allows migrants and refugees to apply for humanitarian programs or make appointments at our points of entry from their cell phones throughout our hemisphere. This means migrants can stay in place and pursue legal pathways to the United States from where they are, rather than surging to our border. And by putting the power to apply for lawful entry literally into their hands, this reduces the opportunities for cartels and criminal networks to take advantage of their desperation and vulnerability. 
We first put this platform to the test a little over a year ago, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which caused the largest outpouring of refugees in Europe since World War II. We quickly saw the impact here at home. In April 2022, all of a sudden, we began seeing 1,000 refugees per day arriving at our southwestern border from Ukraine. We had to act fast, and we did. We launched Uniting for Ukraine, or U for You, that enabled Ukrainians to apply for humanitarian parole directly from their phones from Europe. It streamlined the process of sponsorship, eligibility checks, and background investigations to a matter of days and disincentivized coming to our southwest border. And it allowed us to deliver on the president's promise. Over the last year, we've been able to welcome more than 125,000 Ukrainians to our country through you for you In January, we rolled out a similar pilot with programs for migrants from Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and Nicaragua. From a Homeland Security perspective and from a humanitarian perspective, this has been a remarkable success. In the time between the rollout and the end of March, just three months, we saw a 95% drop in migration to our border from these four countries. But once again, figuring out how to maximize technology and minimize its abuse is an iterative process. It's not perfect. For example, many people live in places without good cell phone service, and this system depends on matching individuals with their application photo, which creates the possibility of fraud or misidentification. So we've worked continually to improve these pilot programs and innovate solutions like enhancing usability in low bandwidth scenarios and strengthening fraud prevention. We're also leveraging innovation and technology to better detect drugs, weapons, and other illicit goods coming across our border. We're working with big data analytics to target and map networks of human smugglers who exploit vulnerable populations moving across the border. And we are working to counter the ways in which those who would do us harm exploit technology innovation to their deadly benefit. This is a major priority for the president. In the last two years, we've significantly increased the use of non-intrusive inspection technology, which allows our border agents to thoroughly and quickly inspect and scan cars and cargo. The technology is fast and effective, which is good for our border security and our cross-border commerce. And in the coming years, we plan to modernize our tools even more, including by incorporating artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to identify anomalies at the border even faster. I know you have a very full schedule ahead of you today hearing what Ilbert described, but I just want to take a moment to end where I began with Ash. For those of us who had the privilege of knowing Ash as a leader, a colleague, a mentor, or friend, we know that no matter what, Ash always got the job done. And though his shining mind was often way out ahead of us, generating ideas before anyone else had arrived at those ideas and illuminating the path for others, he too knew that he couldn't get everything done alone that success required collaboration with partners and sometimes even with adversaries. From the early days of working with Senators Sam Nunn and Dick Lugar to generate the historic cooperative threat reduction program to the creation of TAP, he knew we had to boldly innovate and then work together across government, between government and the private sector, with NGOs and with our international partners. He once wrote, 
American technology superiority is not a birthright. It must be earned again and again. That's our challenge, to find ways we can work together to take advantage of emerging technologies, to find ways we can work together to take responsibility for their consequences, or more simply put, to be more like Ash, to be his living legacies. Thank you for being here today to carry his torch forward.